May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to uh, another Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, doing our bit to preserve the legacy of Shunju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. And today, uh, our guest is Micah Sawyer. Uh, Micah is the son of Ken and Elizabeth Sawyer, who were students of Shunju Suzuki. And uh, he spent a number of his early years uh, at Green Gulch Farm. He was born there. Eight days, gosh, I can't remember now, before or I think eight days after my son, Kelly, was born. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, I've been very close with his parents and have, you know, watched Micah grow up. Of course, he's going to be 50 this year. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we always think of uh, of uh, our kids as kids somewhat. Uh, Micah's uh, son, Micah Jr., uh, died of a fentanyl overdose at the uh, age of 22, uh, four years ago in June. And, uh, you know, it was a great tragedy and uh, very painful, uh, of course, for him and Micah's mother and uh, Micah Jr.'s mother and uh, Micah's uh uh, current wife, Michelle, and for Ken and Elizabeth, and, you know, all of us uh, who were close. Micah and uh, his wife, Michelle, after some period of time, wasn't too long, they started dealing with uh, the fentanyl, uh, opiate, um, OD issue, and they founded a, an organization called Micah's Hugs. Uh, you can go to it at micahshugs.org, M-I-C-A-H-S dot org. And uh, Micah is going to talk about what Micah's Hugs uh, is all about and what it's done, which is very impressive, what they've done, uh, and about the, the whole addiction uh, problem, which is so enormous now in America and worldwide. Uh, and um, he talks about, you know, somewhat about 
growing up around Zen Center, too, San Francisco Zen Center. So um, just as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll give Mike a call. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, Hit unpause, and we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever, and we'll give Micah Sawyer a call. Hey, David. Hi, Micah. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? All right. All right. Uh, yeah. Um, What's our time difference there? What time my time is it where you're at? It's uh, five minutes after 10 in the morning. So right. you're at uh, seven, five after seven in the evening. Uh, Santa, let's see. No, you're you're in you're in Santa Rosa, uh, California. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Micah's hugs, and sure. but you know everything else, your whole life up to now, whatever you want to talk <laughs> about. <laughs> uh, scary. <laughs> so, um, uh, why don't we? Um, what what just tell me what's on your mind now what what are you up to what are you up to you know today these days well we're doing the you know soil construction is still going full time and Ken's still in there full time well he's not quite full time but he's still doing most of the estimating and stuff so you know my full time job is still the construction business and yeah. building custom homes rolling away with that but the Microsoft thing is what we do on the side is kind of taking off these days and we're doing quite a bit of work with um mm. You know, Mike Hugs with helping people with substance abuse issues, especially long, young people trying to do, um, you know, education, um, trying to reduce the stigma through education, and also doing a lot with harms reduction. You know, when Micah passed away, that was sort of one of the things that I realized is that, you know, they were, were kind of lacking in the harm reduction thing and the whole commercial industry of um abstinence only rehab live in rehab is sort of just pushing that only and there's a lot of people that could use a lot of help in the harm reduction aspect so that's what we decided to sort of work with and mm. we got into doing quite a bit we you know it took us a while to sort of figure out what we wanted to do and find out where the need was and one of the big things we started doing was Norcan training and are you familiar with Norcan? Yeah uh, I am but uh, why don't you refresh my memory Sure so Narcan is a drug that, you know, brings somebody back from an opioid overdose by blocking the opioid receptors in somebody's body so that it just stops, you know, having any effect in their body. And for a long time, it was a, you know, an injection that took a needle and a vial that they turned it into a nasal spray now, which makes it, you know, much easier for the average person to not be intimidated by using a nasal spray. Um, and it works really well. But 
when Micah was using, and I was kind of worried about him, I used to buy Norcan for $150 a box. And I sort of realized that, you know, how many people out there that are struggling that can't really afford that. Especially uh-huh. when sometimes it takes many doses to bring somebody back. We've heard of up to 12 doses to bring somebody back from an overdose. Wow. Um, so wow. Now you yeah. say 12 doses. Yeah. And are, are you, are you still talking about a nasal, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a nasal spray, and what we distribute, there's boxes that have two doses in each box, so it's a little like a, um, a little plastic device that you push up on a plunger and it administers one dose, and then you throw it away and grab another one. So the boxes that we distribute have two doses in each box, um, and you know, but it's it's hard to get. You have to have a prescription, and we kind of decided that you know we wanted to try to get as much of it out there as possible. So um, Michelle wrote grants, and we've gotten two grants now um, for about let's see, three, almost six thousand boxes of Narcan. And so we distribute. We figure that's worth a little bit, no more than half a million dollars worth of Norcan. We've been able to distribute it into the community and get get it out there. And we've heard back a number of cases where people have actually used what we've gotten them to, you know, to save somebody's life and bring it back. So we figure that was really working well. So we kept sort of pushing this. Mm-hmm. They are removing the prescription requirement from it. Yeah, that's great. what I wanted to, hear, to uh, ask. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you so distribute it? Yeah. How do you distribute it if they need a prescription? They have to go get so it, the way and it, then you give it, or no? So the way it works is we have a prescription to get it in quantities, and we have a grant that pays for it from the state of California Health Department, Department of Health, mm. and we are allowed to give it to somebody that doesn't have a prescription as long as we teach them how to use it. So that's where we started doing these trainings where we get groups of people together and any anybody that was interested in any you know establishment that was interested. We've done it in bars, we've done it in firehouses, we've done it for kids, you know, high school kids, things like that. Um, but we'll put a little thing together where we do a Norcan training, and that also just turns into an educational thing for you know, at the, at the same time, people always have lots of other questions. So going through this and you know, going through what I did with my son's. Um, you know, substance abuse and his issues. I've learned a lot and I've been around those too much, unfortunately. So we do a lot of education at the same time. We're doing North yeah. training just in the whole, the whole issue of substance abuse and what's happening out there and what the problems are. And fentanyl, you know, is the biggest problem right now in terms of, you know, the, the real issues with substance abuse and the deaths that are happening are about, oh, the last we heard is about 80% of the deaths from overdose are from fentanyl, are fentanyl related. Yeah. Um, so that's the biggest piece of it. We also do, um, we have fentanyl test strips where people can test other substances to see if there's fentanyl in them. And we do, we distribute those and we do trainings on how to use the fentanyl test strips for people that want to try to stay away from it. Mm. Unfortunately, when we first started doing this, we were doing, I was, I had the, the idea that I was going to be giving out fentanyl test strips to people that were using heroin so they could test the heroin to make sure there's no fentanyl in it. But very quickly after my son passed away, People, opi- or you know, um, heroin kind of dried up. People couldn't get it, and the only thing they could get was fentanyl. So now, you know, opioid addicts are mostly just doing fentanyl, and they know it's fentanyl, and so they don't really need to test it to stay away from fentanyl because they know that's what they're doing. Mm. But people that are still want to do, you know, they're getting a lot of contamination in other drugs. So people that want to do cocaine and make sure there's no fentanyl in it, or meth, or other other wow. substances, can test it to make sure they're staying away from the fentanyl. Wow. Somebody putting fentanyl in cocaine. I mean, oh, it's it's super super common. And now the big thing now is that 
they've done a big cutback on prescription medication. So if you have um, you know, prescription painkillers, and a lot of people are addicted to their doctor's prescription of opioid painkillers, and now they've changed the laws so they can't prescribe near as much. But what they weren't paying attention to is the fact that they had all these addicts out there that were addicted to what they were getting from their doctor. And when they cut them back really hard, they had to go look for a different source for the medication, and they started buying black market prescription pills. But unfortunately, these black market prescription pills are now mostly fentanyl, containing fentanyl. So that's where a lot of these overdoses are coming from because people think they're taking an oxycodone or something like that, and it actually turns out to be fentanyl. Ah, ah, wow. So that's a big, you know, that's a big part of the education that we're trying to do is teach people what's happening and teach people how much of those drugs are, are, are containing fentanyl and how easy it is to overdose. Wow. Yeah. So, so Micah, when he was doing heroin and he had a phobia of needles, so he was only smoking heroin. So he was smoking black tar heroin and he was clean for about seven months or he was doing really well. At least he may have had some slips in that period, but he had a job and he was doing really well and he had a relapse. And he and I used to think in the old days, the fact that he didn't ever shoot up might kind of really protect him because it's pretty hard to die of an overdose of heroin when you're smoking it because you'll tend to just sort of go to sleep before you get such a big dose. Yeah. But fentanyl, when he relapsed, um, he smoked black tar heroin that was contaminated with fentanyl and just the smoking of it is what killed him. Oh, is that right? I, I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So they even said in the corner report that he had no track marks and that he had never had, wasn't injecting anything. So. Mm. Mm. But, you know, the fentanyl changed that whole story where it's no longer like you can definitely now die of an overdose from smoking that. Mm. Oh, you can't. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Ouch. It used to be pretty hard to die of an overdose from smoking heroin, but with fentanyl now, it's not yeah. hard anymore. Yeah. Got it. And before, and, uh, with uh, opium, that used to be a big problem with uh, opium addiction uh, in China, of course. And mm. um, it's uh, harder to get addicted to opium, of course, than yeah. heroin or yeah. morphine. But, you know, it still yeah. happened. Yeah. Uh, it's stronger and it's more potent and it's faster. And that's part of the reason we people always have to want to know why, too. Like, why are they putting fentanyl which is a downer of course and cocaine which is an upper and a big part of the reason is that fentanyl is more addictive than cocaine so if they can get you more addicted to it faster so you're buying more then their profits go up mm. Mm. wow uh what about um the uh the, there was one family i associated with fentanyl is that true well, I, you're, you're probably thinking of the Slacker family. Yeah, I mean, I only, it, it's nothing I followed closely. Uh, okay. But so what, what about that is, end of it? The, uh, yeah. you, you know, the business end of it, the legal end of it. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a big, there was a big, you know, explosion in opioid addiction, and it was kind of a little bit pre fentanyl, and it was in the Oxycontin. And Oxycontin, you know, which was the Slacker family that owns Purdue Pharma that was producing Oxycontin and, oh, right. Telling, right. and basically telling people 
that it was not addictive and it was safe and you could take it without worrying about it when, you know, those lawsuits have now proven that they knew way, way early how bad it really was and how addictive it really was. But they were, you know, lying to people about the addictive powers of it. The other problem with Oxycontin is that it was, it's a a slow time release pill in Oxycontin. So you can take a much stronger pill that slowly time release without, you know, getting as strong. But what the addicts were doing, of course, is they were crushing it up and snorting it, which sort of makes it no longer slow time release anymore. So you're getting a much stronger, much more potent dose once you crush it up and snort it. So. So the Sackler family was responsible, and that's when a lot of these, what they call the pill mills or the pill doctors that were just, you know, they'd, they'd sign a thousand prescriptions and ta- on a tablet and just hand them out to anybody that would give them a, a hundred bucks. And so they had a lot of these doctors and, you know, that were just sort of getting rich off of selling these prescriptions to anybody that wanted it. So the Sackler family, you know, they had this whole thing where they've gone through these lawsuits and they had to pay quite a bit of money, but part of their court settlement sort of uh, unfortunately protected the biggest part of the family money so they're the Sacklers on they are still one of the richer families in the world that have you know paid out a nice chunk of money in a court settlement but they're still a super super rich family mm. Mm. yeah fentanyl though you know fentanyl in itself is you know it's, it's what most people get as a pain killer when you're going in for surgery it's what the you know your uh, oh is that right Huh. In the operating room, yeah, and it's because it's the most strongest, most potent, and it's when it's used by the proper person and the proper dose who knows what they're doing, you know, and it's really helpful for when you're in the operating room, but unfortunately, it gets abused too easily when it's outside of that. Hmm. So, um, now, uh, you, you know, you were talking about how there was a a gap in, uh, in, you know, how to deal with, uh, addiction. Uh, and mainly there was the, uh, sort of AA approach, uh, yeah. of, you know, just, you know, stop doing it and have a community that, um, uh, that helps you keep off it or go into rehab. And, and we're, we're involved mainly Katrinka with, uh, with, uh, uh, a, a treatment program here and, you know, uh, 12, very, you know, AA and Al-Anon and, uh, it, at least half our friends are involved with that. Um, Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I wonder if there's any uh, program like what you're talking about here. I've, you know, I never, I, it doesn't, it, I never see any evidence of alcoholism or drug taking. I mean, there's no in a big event where it's full of young people. There's you know hardly anybody drinking. There's no bad behavior. Uh, but then. When I talk to oh, yeah. to uh, Indonesians I know, uh, you know, who are like uh, middle aged or something, a lot of them would tell me about periods when they, they were heroin addicts or are, uh-huh. uh, uh, you, you know, and and uh, that is a, a problem here. And and alcohol yeah. and and uh, alcohol also 
in in Asia, what I've noticed is that uh, well, here and in India, you don't see it much, you know. Uh, okay. But if you talk to people that deal with it, it's um, th- there's a, a big problem with alcohol. You know, uh, it's, so it's a little more it's a little more behind the scenes and hidden, huh? Oh yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, well, I've got. Alcohol here, you know, is just so socially accepted and every event you go to is alcohol related. And it's kind of that's I think that's a part of why alcoholics have have such a hard time because it's, you know, you can sort of decide to stop doing heroin and keep away from people that do heroin. But it's pretty hard to stay away from alcohol when it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, Katrinka, you know, uh, Katrinka and I, we don't mind being around alcohol. Uh, We've even... You know, I, I haven't had a drink in uh, not 19 years or something. She's like 20, oh, wow. 25. And wow. sometimes yeah. we'll keep alcohol. Somebody will give us a bottle of wine. We'll say, oh, Kelly's coming in three months. Let's just keep it for him. Oh, yeah. uh, but yeah, I know yeah. other people uh, wouldn't do that, uh, wouldn't yeah. trust yeah, themselves sure. with that. So I guess it depends on that. Individual. Well, I think the other thing that, that that we're starting to try to work on more, and that some of the you know programs around here are starting start just starting to work on more, is like there's a large community of people that are sort of um, somewhat abusing substances, and they're having a you know a smaller sort of a problem. They kind of don't like where they're heading and drinking a bit too much, but they're not quite ready to say, "Hey, I'm an alcoholic, and I need to go to AA, or I need to go to." a recovery program and and then are there ways we can help somebody just you know stop it before it gets to that point stop it you know be with getting you know better habits with substances instead of um waiting until it's become a, a huge huge problem you know so. yeah do you, do you remember uh, uh the the drug policy institute that was founded by a guy named Nate no it's the uh, drug policy alliance Ethan Nadelman. It was uh, funded by George Soros, and uh, uh-huh. I I went and heard him. He was like, you know, like uh, twenty years ago, uh, twenty five mm-hmm. years ago. He was like introducing the idea of harm reduction uh, okay, yeah. to a much wider audience. Um, sure. And uh, uh, so, uh, and and I remember uh, um, at um, at Zen Center, uh, there was um, a woman there who was working with people in the tenderloin, Jana Draca. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, she was talking around Zen Center about harm reduction. Nobody. It was like just, you know, this is like, see, 20, 25 years ago. It was just being, the idea was just being introduced. Uh, yeah. So uh, is harm reduction, is that is that still uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the uh, guiding principle in dealing with substance abuse? Unfortunately, not enough. And I think part of the issue is that, you know, substance abuse treatment has become 
um, huge money-making thing, and it's become very, you know, um, commercialized with big companies that are running these, you know, um, substance or um, abstinence-only programs that they're doing, and that's the the biggest way they can figure out to make money out of it is to run these really expensive abstinence-only rehab programs, live-in programs that cost a ton, and they get insurance companies to pay for them. Um, and unfortunately, it's sort of a very small percentage of people, but it's sort of the people I think that have figured out better ways to work with people that are starting to really sort of push this abstinence only concept. And I think it's also sort of becoming a bit bigger because of fentanyl, um, because you're, you're realizing that if you can, you know, if you can get somebody to be on, you know, morphine instead of fentanyl, obviously morphine isn't, you know, it's not great to be addicted to morphine, but you're, with a regulated dose, you're much less likely to die than you are of using. Oh more. yeah. Yeah. And what about methadone? That was like, mm-hmm. uh, that was like a really big thing. Not that long ago. I was yeah. at a methadone clinic in Berlin, uh, 10 years, uh, now about 11 years ago. And, uh, what I've, uh, what I've always heard from people in, drug treatment including this German doctor I was staying with him in there he was a, a Buddhist priest you know he was a Zen priest mm-hmm. uh, they don't like methadone but it was what the government allowed them to use What right. what's happening with methadone these days so there are methadone clinics around um, I think that there's a couple of problems that's hard to get too many people too interested in them and I think you know um, one is they're pretty regulated and you have to go into a clinic to get your, you know, small amount of methadone that you can use. So you have to go in fairly regularly and there's not that many methadone clinics around. So especially for people that are really having much higher substance abuse problems that sort of want to use regularly and don't have a hard time getting to wherever that clinic is, which is probably far away from where they're living. And a lot of people that are, especially like the homeless population or the really severe um, the people with the severe cases of substance abuse, I think that it's just hard for them to get to the clinic enough. I know there are people that are use it to help with the treatment and there's some people that are successful with it, but it's not huge. It's not, it's not super big. And I think um, like from where we're at, I don't think there's a methadone clinic very close to us. So people would have to go kind of far to get there. And again, like you said, I don't think people like it as much. So people will do it if they're really trying hard to work on it, but it's not their preferred drug of choice. But you're right, it's it's definitely a much, much safer, you know, way to get it. And there's still addictions to methadone, of course. It's not a perfect thing. But yeah, um, well, that's why. Definitely the, the, less, the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Um, the, the, I've heard from a couple of doctors who were using it that they thought it was just as addictive as heroin. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that too, but then I've, I think, I mean, I think the thing is that because it's much more well regulated and it's sort of prescription medication that you can keep your dose well regulated. And even if you're more addicted, just as addicted to it, you're less likely to overdose and you're less likely to die from it because you can more easily regulate what you're taking. Yeah. And that's one of the big problems with fentanyl is that fentanyl is so incredibly powerful and potent. It only takes a very small number of like grains of salt to overdose on it and to try to regulate your dose is really hard and i was just learning recently that the street meth or the street fentanyl that people are buying on the street can be anywhere between five to 95 percent pure 
So if you're used to taking something that's 5% pure and then you get a batch that's 95% pure, you're probably going to overdose, you know, so it's very hard to regulate the dose that you're taking, which Mm. is part of why if we had a better system like the methadone that people could take of something that is sort of pharmaceutically regulated with a a specific dose, I think it would, you know, the deaths at least would become much, much less. We still may, it still may not, you still may get addicted to it just as easily, but you're probably not going to overdose and die on it. In the same way, you know, I think that in the United States, deaths last year was about 110,000 deaths, and about 80 percent of those were from fentanyl. So, you know, wow, that is so incredible! That's such a huge number. Think of that! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, even if even if we had a program that didn't necessarily stop the addiction or stop the problem if we could change what people were suffer- were struggling with to something that didn't actually kill you. At least we can massively reduce the number of deaths that we were getting. Mm. Mm. Wow. And maybe that would be methadone. Maybe that would be morphine. Maybe that would be something else that could be regulated in a way that's um, not so easy to overdose on. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, it's it's certainly much more true now than it was before that uh, you really shouldn't mess with it at all, you know? Yeah, it, it makes it difficult to be a, a safe user. You know? <laughs> it it wow. Wow. I mean, I used to be around pure heroin, and right. I didn't particularly like it, which was good. But the amount yeah. of it that could kill somebody was very small. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, very small, like a, uh, uh, like a little needle, uh, pure heroin. Somebody who'd never had it could be dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah. and the other fentanyl that they have now is something is, uh, is around a hundred times stronger than heroin. So it's this tiny little amount of that. So yeah. You uh, were talking it's, it's, about grains, you know, how many, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, what yeah. about the law? Um, so the, I'm kind of happy to see, we actually, we were in Washington, D.C., oh, God, I know, a couple of months ago, a month and a half ago, something like that, and we were working with another group that we met there called Today I Matter, and we did this poster project where we set up, you know, bust 24-inch by 36-inch posters of people's faces that had died of a, of overdose, and we put them on the Capitol Mall right in front of the Washington Monument. And it really brought a lot of attention, you know, to it. And people coming by and seeing the actual faces of people really means a lot more than just hearing the numbers. So it was it was pretty impactful. But we also went to the DEA museum where they have in Washington D.C. The DEA has a museum of you know it's a pretty interesting museum. But as you walk into the hall of the museum, they have a memorial to people that have died of fentanyl overdose, which was I was kind of very. Um, I was kind of happy to see the DEA taking this in a different direction than what I usually think of the DEA as, where they're actually having a memorial for these people. And Micah's, my son's picture is actually up on the wall in this memorial. There's 2,000 pictures of people. Mm. Um, and it seems like the DEA's concept used to be that these are all just the scumbags we need to put in prison, and now they're actually accepting the fact that they're kind of, they're human and that they're more than just that. And I think they're they're... Their approach has really been turning to the large cartel dealer, and they're, they're not putting as much emphasis on busting the street-level dealer as they used to. 
I think sort of understanding that and you know something that I came to understand when my son was struggling is that the low level dealer on the street is often just another addict that's your friend that finds a source and sells it to you and they sell it to their friend and they sell it that's to their right. friend and yeah so I think a lot of the concept that we have of you know, there's there's the, the the poor victim of the drug dealer, and then there's these big bad drug dealers that we need to all lock up. I think we, I, I started to realize that mostly what I saw was they're all sort of you know kids that are suffering and that are finding a source and selling it to their friends, and then their friends are saying that's there is a higher level at some point, of course, which is this sort of cartel dealer that are pretty bad people, but. Um, that's up the latter ways, I think. And I didn't see a whole lot of that with the you know, the run-ins that I had with people. And I started to realize that, like, a lot of people that my son were getting drugs from were, like, the kids of people that I knew that were also suffering the substance abuse problems, and they were just doing this to support their habit, you know? Right, right. Uh, most drug dealers uh, are drug not Well, this isn't totally true at all, but uh, yeah. that so many are drug users there's just everybody's dealing to everybody else to you know different yeah. degrees but i i did yeah, know exactly. i did know uh some uh people that were fairly big in heroin and cocaine smuggling mm -hmm. and stuff that uh right. had no problem themselves uh right yeah and uh you know, they were just sort of like, they were fairly normal people, you right. know. Uh, I think, I, think I, I know a couple of the same people you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan Nadelman. I went to hear uh, a talk by him in Pacific Heights, uh, raising money with a, a room full of very wealthy people. Uh, one of them took me. Uh and uh, it was uh, George Soros who um, oh, yeah. who went to him, and uh, Soros had uh, read stuff he'd written. He used to work for uh, the DEA, you know, and, you know, really got into uh, harm reduction. And harm reduction, yeah. he defined, as I recall, of reducing the harm from, you know, taking drugs and reducing the harm from the laws <laughs> about drugs oh, and the yeah. way oh, yeah. drug users are um, are you know uh, treated by society and the law and everything yeah, yeah uh, absolutely uh, you look around you know when my when Micah was in the rehab program and I went to visit him and the, you know they had family day we could go to visit we realized that about about 40% of the people there, I think, were there for alcohol, and about 40% were there for opiates, and then about the other 20% were there for the whole mixture of everything else, you know, from benzos to cocaine to methamphetamine. But if you look at, like, the massive largest amount of the people there, it was opiates and alcohol. And it's uh -huh. kind of interesting how much how much differently we as a society look at alcohol which is obviously a huge problem but we accept it completely where we you know tend to completely look down on the opiate user or the meth user so much more than the alcohol user uh, well alcohol my my experience is that uh uh heroin addicts uh and were uh 
they, they weren't as disgusting as alcoholics. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Society in general seems to think about that the other way, even though, you know, in reality, it's not necessarily true. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, uh, al- and and alcohol is the drug that that's associated with violence the most. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's some people the that really bad, flip yeah. over into a, a, another a sort of personality if they're drinking. They can, they have they have uh, yeah. two levels of that in ja- Japanese. One is the mm-hmm. they have. If you go into some places that serve alcohol in Japan, particular type, I can't remember what, uh, and and most places serve alcohol, but I mean they have food, right. but they they will have these three faces that are sort of like uh, the face of comedy and tragedy, with representing uh, like Greek theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be mm-hmm. a, a happy face, a crying face, and an angry face. And uh, mm-hmm. it's the happy face is uh, Wari Jogo, and uh, and the crying face is Naki Jogo, and the uh, uh, the angry face is Okori Jogo, and then there's Shuran, and the Shuran is mm-hmm. somebody who becomes violent when they drink. Yeah. Yeah, it's very common. I mean, alcohol causes a lot of the fights, a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, it's, it's I mean, I think it, by far the drug that's involved in the most <laughs> the violence when it doesn't come to, you know, dealer violence, that sort of gang violence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, I, I knew a, a guy in, um, in Stinson who did, uh, he was, um, what do you call it? The guys who ride in ambulances and then, uh, you go help people wherever they're uh, going, you know. Um, you mean a paramedic or EMT? Yeah, yeah, EMTs. And yeah. um, so he was doing a, uh, a CPR training at Green Gulch mm-hmm. that I set up. Mm-hmm. And I knew him from uh, the Sand Dollar in uh, Stinson. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I asked him what you know, he he was talking about all the the problems they run into going places, and and there's actually a a problem with uh, you know people fighting and uh, families yeah. violence and stuff. I said, what what percentage of uh, of uh, alcohol uh, yeah. abuse do you run into when you go somewhere and the problem is violent? He said, all of it. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I believe that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He also said they never saved anybody from CPR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Not maybe it's, not um, never, but yeah, it's uh, only the perfect situation, right? <laughs> yeah, and and those uh, electrical things. Uh, yeah. That they use. Um, yeah. Those usually don't work. You know, you see yeah, it in, in yeah. on TV and in the movies. Uh, they put yeah. them on people's heart. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, there was that show on TV. Wasn't it Emergency Room? Michael Crichton wrote yeah. it. Uh, what was it called? 
uh, it was very big. Uh, ER. ER, ER, right. I, I, I didn't yeah, watch yeah. it. I remember yeah. reading that, uh, there's something like the AMA or something requested that ER stop showing that saving people. <laughs> the battle, yeah. Well, I think the issue is that usually there's a reason why somebody's heart stops, right? So you can jumpstart their heart for a second, but if you haven't stopped the underlying reason of why it stopped, it's just going to stop again if you haven't dealt with that, that yeah. problem, you know? Yeah. Hey, what? what? Know, you, Go on. Well, I don't know. You may have heard of this, but I thought this was something interesting that we sort of learned about this recently is uh, there was there was two incidences that I thought really kind of showed a lot about um, substance abuse. One was during Vietnam, they figured about 20 percent of the soldiers in Vietnam were using heroin regularly while they were in Vietnam. And yeah. there was a big scare that all these people are going to come home and we're going to have this huge wave of heroin addicts. That's and right. they all came home and the vast, the vast majority of them just stopped using heroin. They That's, just quit. I remember the that. Other, the other, yeah. And then the other experiment they did with rats is they put a rat in a cage and they'd offer them a water bottle with cocaine in the water and a water bottle that's just water. And the rat would tend to just use the cocaine until he died. But they realized their experiment was pretty flawed, so they did it again where they they called it the rat utopia, where they made this wonderful place for rats, and there was lots of rats to play with, and there was toys for them and all kinds of different food. And so the rats were happy, and they just drank the water. They didn't drink the cocaine water. They pretty much left it alone. Uh, so it was yeah. really sort of showing how much of the substance abuse problem has to do with an underlying dis, you know, dissatisfaction with somebody's life or something that people aren't happy with, and they're looking for some way to ease their pain or you know uh, change the way they're feeling. Yeah, I, I'm I'm aware again, of that too. And pardon? Yeah. Well, I was gonna, it's again, that's why we try to talk a lot, too, about how a lot of these like substance abuse rehab programs that just take somebody in and they detox them and they get them off drugs and then they put them back out again. But if they haven't really dealt with the underlying problem of why somebody's abusing their, you know, abusing substances, then it's not likely to be very successful. You know, if you're not looking at why is this person unhappy, why is this person like trying to self-medicate with these drugs at the same time? You know? Hmm. Uh, you know, this makes me think of that uh, methadone clinic in Berlin uh, because mm -hmm. it was in the Turkish section. And the Turks mm -hmm. in, in Germany are like uh, uh, Latin Americans in America. Uh, they, they tend okay. to be looked at as an underclass or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. they tend to be the, the, the people that do the lower level jobs. Um, and, um, but in the, uh, and, and they're discriminated against, uh, but okay. the, the, all right. So it was in the Turkish section of Berlin, which is a very cool section. It was really great. I go walk yeah. around, I go to work with him, you know, and it, it had a lot of culture and it would, uh, had a lot yeah. of heart. I loved it. Well, none of his patients yeah. were Turks. They were all, they were all like native Germans. Uh, and, and he pointed that out. He said the Turks have a really strong culture. Uh, hmm. but that, maybe that's not always true. I wonder about that here. What percentage, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the Hinduism and the Islam, yeah. uh, yeah, interesting. uh, 
which one I, I would imagine the Muslims would have a higher rate. Uh, although they can be very, very together, uh, yeah. too. But the, the, yeah, yeah. the Hinduism here on Bali with so many people, it's just so involving. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, young people here are, uh, are pretty wholesome. You know, you don't yeah. have to worry yeah. about them. You don't have to worry about young men here. And young men are, are yeah. uh, traditionally one of the biggest problems with society. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, all right. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, so, um, all right. Uh, I, I want to <laughs> ask you about, uh, growing up, uh, at, uh, uh, around Zen, Zen Center. Center. Uh, yeah. Of course, you know, I was uh, at your birth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you uh, knew me all the way through. <laughs> your your parents and uh, Diet, Diane Goldeslag at the time, my wife, yeah. and I yeah. lived, we sort of had a type of duplex at Green Gold. Farm. Duplex, right? right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. Ken, Ken built uh, you know, the side you all were on. How to, these were yeah. bullpens, I, I guess you know. Uh, yeah, that's for, right. I for, was born in a bullpen. You were born in a bullpen. You were. And, and, uh, for George Wheelwright's prize bulls that were very that's big right. and very strong. And, uh, but both of which drowned in his, um, uh, you know, his uh, reservoirs that he built. Because they oh, walk yeah. in and they couldn't get out. Uh, couldn't get out. Wow. Uh, anyway, uh, your mother had a really long labor. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I can't remember. It was like hours. 35 hours or something. Yeah, yeah. 36 hours is what she says. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. All right. I remember yeah, it. Yeah. it. And uh, I think you were born eight days before Kelly. You were Kelly, born yeah, in the that's, that's right. You were born in the bullpen, but we yeah. hadn't moved in yet. Uh, Kelly was born okay. in in that uh, room above the kitchen. If you go up the stairs there right away. Mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and and you had a lot of colic. You cried yeah. a lot. <laughs> uh, I heard about that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the suffering I've gone through for you, and how ungrateful you are. Uh, no. Uh, so, um, uh, what was it like growing up around there? Yeah, it was kind of great at the time. You know, it was um, kind of wonderful to have the, sort of the freedom to have a safe place to just explore and be a kid and be a a boy doing you know things out in nature, and um, I think the younger years were, you know, in, in that sense of things were were kind of great, kind of cool. Of course, when I was, you know, I moved there when I from there when I was eight, so I was pretty young in the years that I was at Gringolch itself. Um, I think the one thing that I've always thought were sort of the hard part of growing up at Zen Center is that sometimes it doesn't quite prepare you for the real world. You know, you have this sort of idealistic world that you're living in which is really great if you stay in that world but i had had some pretty hard culture shock you know when i jumped into the real world and um 
started going to public school in San Francisco, you know, that was a pretty tough school, not far from the mission district. And I was sort of this naive kid from, um, Zen center that just thought everybody was going to be my friend and come play with me. And I got, I got beat up quite a bit. <laughs> Is that right? Wow. I did. I did. Yeah. When we first moved to San Francisco, I would just kind of go out and play and, you know, my parents were kind of naive at the time and not sort of, sort of realizing quite what was there. And I'd kind of go out and play in the park and get beat up and come back all beat up and go, mom, those kids aren't nice. <laughs> wow. So it was, um, there was a lot of interesting experiences and I think there's a lot of good experiences, but also I think we all sort of realized that there's a little bit of not quite being prepared for the, the rest of the world, you know, when you were sort of that protected and growing up in that sort of idealistic of a situation. And then you get thrown into sort of culture shock when you hit the, <laughs> what the rest of the world is like and not everybody's quite as nice. And, mm. But, you know, I think there was, a, there was a great, a lot of great experiences. That was sort of, but, uh, I remember that was always kind of a rough one. And then I sort of did the um, the the reverse rebelling from my parents sort of thing. You know, I kind of went back to, you know, we were, you know, we weren't strict vegetarians, right, when we were back then. And But at Gringotts, of course, and at Zen Center, we were vegetarians. But when we'd go out to places, we'd eat some meat here and there. Um, but I remember my mom always tells the story about when we moved to San Francisco and I started getting an allowance. I saved up my first two allowances and I bought a steak. My reverse rebellion back to normal culture. You know? <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, that that certainly makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I sort of, and I sort of never kind of followed the you know religious spiritual aspect of it, and I'm not sure. I've often thought later in life why I never had any sort of interest, and I don't know if that was just sort of. Again, the same thing of sort of, the, you know, going the opposite direction or rebelling or, or what it was, you know, but I've always had a pretty sort of like um, scientific common sense sort of a brain. And I have a really hard time believing things if you can't prove it to me, sort of. <laughs> sort of well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. it's bullshit. Either, <laughs> have you ever seen the Bill Maher movie Religious? Oh, Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I remember he's just got that line that, you know, we all have it ingrained in our heads that faith is a great thing. And he has that line is like, why is faith good? Faith is believing in something, even though there's no evidence it's true. You know, why is that a good thing? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, Zen Center uh, did not indoctrinate children. I mean, there no, were, you know, it yeah. uh, there was no program to uh, brainwash the kids. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, but it, it, it probably uh, uh, erred on 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 the end of not giving them a, a good enough idea of what it was all about. Uh, yeah. And, you yeah, know, uh, but yeah. that's hard to do because the adults also were struggling with figuring out what it was all about. <laughs> what it's all about. Of course, of course. But, and I always appreciated that. You know, I have, you know, when you look at most other religions, you're pretty much from the time you're, you're pretty young, you're indoctrinated, right? You're, you do all your christenings and all your different, whatever religious ceremonies when you're a kid. And by the time you grow up, you believe in that religion and you're not sure why, right? So I always really right. appreciated that my parents and Zen Center in general basically I always felt like they wanted or, you know, they wanted me to figure out what I believed on my own without being totally yeah. forced into what 
what I should believe. Yeah. And I, I always appreciated that. I always thought that was by far the way to go. Now I do think that the, you know, the, the morality of what the Buddhism is and the morality of the people of Zen Center got instilled into me for sure, you know, um, but without sort of the the religious part of it. And a lot of the Zen Buddhism, right, isn't, it, it's hard to even say if that's quite a religion as much as it is a way of thinking and a way of living, right? It's, uh, it's, it's like, um, most Zen Buddhists, right, don't have this concept of a high, of necessarily a higher power or a god, right? It's more of a, a, a practice to follow. Well, yeah, I, to me, um, you, you know, uh, it, it's not a system of belief, uh, and it, it's a system of inquiry, uh, and, and, uh, but re- religions, and, and I use that in a sort of institutional sense, uh, that yeah. people automatically start believing things. And, and, yeah. and the religions, I mean, but Buddhism was founded on a, uh, Really, a, a very scientific approach of inquiry, yeah. and there were no statues. There was, uh, yeah. you know, there was meditation, looking into the in, you know, into the nature of mind. There was, uh, you know, there was. Uh, well, anyway, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there's plenty of Buddhism uh, that I've seen that is. Uh, just believing in a lot of superstitious stuff and people yeah. no no matter what no matter what the system of the religion or uh, people will automatically start to create uh supernatural beings out of uh the teachers or the uh founders like buddha uh yeah and to me it's all myth to me, all religious yeah, yeah. teaching is myth. There's none of it that is uh, uh, like uh, uh, is you, you know. It's all something pointing at something deeper. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and sure. to me, believe belief is well. There's a saying. Uh, one Tibetan guy that told me uh, there's a saying: uh, belief is the first door. So it encourages you to take mm-hmm. a look, but then you got to drop it. Uh, yeah, you know. Um, but it's it's uh, always uh, a struggle not to be uh, actually not to be superstitious. <laughs> right. Uh, well, and I think that that was the. I mean, in in terms of most religions, that the Zen Center was pretty good at not. I mean, obviously, there's always some some of that, but. I mean, other forms of Buddhism too, right? Tibetan Buddhism believes a lot more in the whole reincarnation thing and more of the superstition pieces of that, right? More than Zen Buddhism. Is yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it seems to me that, that, uh, people into Tibetan Buddhism believe a lot more. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I've always thought too that, like, especially ancient religions was sort of society's way of keeping people from just killing each other, right? You know, you've got to have a, a, a punishment if you do bad things, right? And a, and a reward if you do good things. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, the heaven and hell. How do you keep, you know, ancient societies that don't really have a law enforcement factor from just slaughtering each other? <laughs> right. 
Right. Um, yeah, that, the um, sort of I call I call that the comic book version of reincarnation or of uh, karma. Right. Uh, right. Like if you kill somebody, then in your next life somebody will kill you, and that sort of thing. It's, exactly. You know. Exactly. Uh, uh, I, I I think um, uh, cause and effect is uh, uh, something uh, that's pretty hard not to believe in. But then right. try, trying to understand or codify w- what it means on a really big scale and in terms of all existence, uh, to me it's all incomprehensible. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was just reading last night uh, about um, uh, the the observatory up above uh, Tassara on the mountain, Uh, Mm -hmm. because I'm I'm writing about some of that stuff uh, there at Tassara. And um, Mm -hmm. when I read, it it said what I had heard when I lived there is that people there said it's one of the best places in the world to look at the stars. I'd hear there's less electrical activity. I'd hear the stars don't twinkle. Anyway, I was reading it, and and I, I remembered looking with a, a giant telescope that somebody had trucked up to Choose Ridge, and they mm-hmm. were showing me galaxies, you know, and I could actually see parts wow. of the galaxies in the spiral arms. And then I was reading on that thing, and it was talking about uh, galaxies and then some of the really big galaxies you know galaxies can have hundreds of billions of stars some of the really big ones right. it says have trillions of stars and yeah. I just I was thinking about that this morning I was thinking you know this is just completely incomprehensible it's it trying trying to understand this with your brain yeah. which is like a tool to deal with uh practical issues it's just <laughs> hopeless yeah yeah that's right you're, uh, be- you're better off with understanding you're not going to be able to answer the questions <laughs> yeah well hey one thing one thing i remember oh one thing i remember is you like guns and <laughs> uh right and and uh you you had something that kids shouldn't have you had a realistic looking gun uh, right. Interesting. Uh, do you remember this? Um, I'm trying to remember that. The, you know, the biggest gun thing was Ethan. Remember Ethan Patchell? Oh, sure. Oh, do I remember Ethan? Yeah. 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 So he was. So he lived in the city before I did, and I used to remember. We we well Kelly and I and Ethan that were all good friends. Right. And Ethan had more more than us this sort of gun infatuation and when we lived at green gulch we weren't really even allowed to have you know toy guns to play with no i think we had some things that were like wooden looking not realistic sort of guns that we would play with but i remember one time ethan coming to visit and he had like you know rambo a you know style whole collection of guns that he came with and i remember kelly and i just being sort of completely blown away and infatuated by all these like realistic toy guns that he had when he came out from, you know, cause he was from San Francisco and Kelly and I were there from green Gulch, just sort of blown away by, by that. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember what at that point then 
So I said, you know, when I got to be a teenager, I started doing a little bit of hunting. And that was sort of, again, I think my, the things that I wasn't sort of allowed to be interested in when I was younger, I became very right. curious about. Right. Um, and it didn't get too carried away and it didn't like really last. And I remember I had always just had, I had the, you know, the hunting rifle version of things. And I always remember like, yeah. the people that I knew that would get way into wanting to have the military rifle version of things and just thinking how kind of carried away that was. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I still have, I said, like I inherited when my wife's um, father died, he had quite a few guns. And, you know, I, when I hunted more, when I was younger, I'd have a couple shotguns and a couple rifles and all that kind of stuff. And I still have them all locked away in a safe, but I mean, it's like, I think I pull something out and shoot it every three or four years now. These oh, days. really? Like, really? Yeah. The ammunition, the ammunition that I have, I probably have to throw away from time to time because I never shoot anything. <laughs> you have to throw it's it just, away, really? Ammunition well, goes I, bad. I don't, I don't really, but that's always the joke because, like, you know, it's it's made of brass, right? And as brass gets old, it tarnishes and gets kind of green. Oh, and stuff I see. Like that. I see. It isn't bright and shiny anymore. So I always like, oh, I'll, sometimes I'll look at some of the ammunition and go, God, I think I bought this thirty years ago. I wonder if it's <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. Well. <laughs> Look, I I thought I have this memory, and it could be false, of you being mm-hmm. stopped by the police, and I think it might have been in in yeah. the hate, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and because nope, you, you you were playing with you were young, you know, you weren't a teenager, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you I had some that. gun yeah. that looked too realistic, and and uh, yeah. They did not like that. They they felt that you were putting yeah. yourself in danger, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Now, now that you mentioned that, I, I remember that incident. And actually, that was a little pellet gun that I had. And the pellet gun completely broke. And I took all the guts out of the inside of it. So there wasn't even anything inside of it. And I used it like as a toy, toy gun, which obviously, looking back at that now, was pretty stupid, of course, because it did look pretty realistic. And yeah, I got the cops saw me walking down the street, and I think it might have been Ethan and I and Kelly, not far from where Dia lived at the time. Right. Planes of cops and robbers or war or something down there in the hate district, and and cops saw me with that gun, and he he kind of really freaked out. He put his hand on his own gun, and he yelled at me, and you know, kind of drop it, you know, sort of thing. And yeah, but it was actually it was it was a little pellet gun that was broken, so it didn't didn't work anymore. Hmm. The interesting thing too is I also had a pair of nunchucks when I we and we oh. lived in the city. We kind of got more. We got kind of into like ninja weapons and throwing stars <laughs> and that kind of crap. And I think I think I actually made a pair of nunchucks with a little piece of chain and two pieces of dowel that I put together. And I got stopped by the cops there. And the funny thing is they took them away and they actually said that. If I was a kid with a handgun, it would have been a misdemeanor, but a kid with nunchucks was a felony. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So they took them away and said that if my parents wanted it, they'd have to come down and file a report at the police department, but we never did. We just... <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. Wow. Also, you all were somewhat into marijuana. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we did. Start, we got into marijuana and we got into psychedelics at a pretty young age. That was sort of, um, you know, I think when I think back on it now, I'm kind of amazed at sort of thinking I moved to San Francisco when I was eight and we left when I was 14. So in that time period between eight and 14, we were smoking a lot of pot. That's for sure. 
And then we were kind of also got started getting into LSD and, and mushrooms a little bit. LSD was more available, I guess, like up on Haight Street. Well, mushrooms, um, yeah. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah, for yeah. some reason, we didn't have as much access to mushrooms. I don't know why, just the people we were hanging out with or whatever, huh. but we had some good access. To, we had access to LSD, so at a pretty young age, you know, in the 10, 12 years old, we started sort of experimenting with LSD. Wow. That, uh, which, which was interesting. Yeah, I I can't imagine yeah. that. I mean, LSD was very important to me, but, uh, you know, I had read about it, and uh, I took it with the psychedelic experience as a guide, you know, right. uh, like meditating, yeah. fasting, uh, not talking. <laughs> uh, so uh, See, I, I never liked Ethan, the idea of taking it and screwing around. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Ethan used to tell his parents that he was staying at my house, and I'd tell my parents I was staying at Ethan's house, and I remember we'd go, like, drop LSD and go walk down missions in the, in the mission district and just hang out all night long and then realize, like, neither one of us had a place to go home to because we both told our parents we were staying at the other one's house, so we'd, like, wind up sleeping in a doorway somewhere when our high was crashing. <laughs> really? Oh, you yeah. you could have gotten caught so easily. Uh, oh, God, yeah. I mean, easy. I, I would, you know, one of them could call the other house, how's Micah doing or what? Huh. But. Oh, yeah. It oh, would, yeah. It, well, communication was so much different back then, too, right? We didn't have cell phones. We oh, didn't that's text right. each other. As yeah. Well. So, so <laughs> phone calls were kind of a bigger deal. And I don't think you would, like, call your friend at one o'clock in the morning, usually. And I don't think we could get away with it anymore today. You know, uh, Ken did a survey of parents uh, uh-huh. about uh, what do you think about your kids smoking pot and all that stuff. Yeah. And he uh-huh. said the two most uh, libertarian parents were me and Mayumi. Uh-huh. Uh, Interesting. Uh, and uh, I remember once... Elon and I, when Elon and I were uh, fairly new, maybe we'd only been together a couple of years or something, right? And uh, maybe mm-hmm. I was the, uh, I was, uh, the, I don't know, the cook at the Tenso, mm-hmm. taking you and Kelly and Micah to a movie and, uh, you know, you all were about 11 or 12 and I stopped the car on the way and I turned around and I said, all right, no pot, no movie. Yeah. And so we all smoked some pot and went to the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now I, I, uh, I'm not living in America now, so uh, they'll and and I don't think uh, Indonesia would extradite me for that. I don't even know if they do extradite people here. Uh, yeah. My experience with pot when I started getting into smoking too much pot was like, you know, I wasn't feeling like there was addiction to pot or that it was a massive problem, except for the fact that I started feeling like I was just being lazy and not accomplishing much. And that's sort of when I decided I needed to start smoking less pot just to have more energy and accomplish more things, you know. Yeah, I remember that. I remember you got okay. you got more into it than Kelly. Uh, 
uh, yeah. Uh, and but um, uh, and then when I moved up here, when I was fourteen, I moved up here to Occidental, and I just completely quit. I don't think from probably from the time I was fourteen till maybe seventeen, I don't think I smoked almost any pot at all. Mm. And then at seventeen, I smoked just a little bit here and there. And ever since then, I've just you know I smoke occasionally here and there, but not not regularly. I had periods when I was living in Bolinas and working on music or, you know, I worked for Zen mm-hmm. Center too, a lot, where where I smoked too much pop and yeah, where, uh, uh, you know, like, like you say, it's not physically addictive, but I was smoking more really than I wanted to. And I, um, uh, uh, and, and, uh, you know, it was just, I've had a couple of periods like that where uh, mm-hmm. it was just too much and it was really sort of unpleasant. Uh, but, you yeah. know, you get into these habits. But then uh, most, I'd say, uh, then mainly I just smoked very, very little. Uh, I would have a joint and... uh you know, it would last two weeks, uh, right. or something like that. And I, I, I was doing the same thing with tobacco. I'd have, you know, a little tobacco yeah. in it. But then yeah. I figured out, you know, basically I'm sort of strung out. So like, uh, yeah. almost 20 years ago, I, I stopped doing anything except tea. I stopped coffee yeah. too. Uh, coffee. Right? Yeah. Well, I find that I don't, I don't really like pot socially anymore because I feel like I sort of become a zombie and I don't socialize very well. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I will sometimes smoke um, to help sleep because I find that I have I have insomnia and my brain just I can't shut off my brain. It's um, it just dwells on shit while I'm laying in bed. And sometimes I'll smoke a little bit of pot just to help my brain stop. <laughs> well, it's going all going all over the place. Yeah, it, it not very much, just a very small amount. Just right, to relax a little bit. Right, it is. I remember reading in Robert S. Durop's Drugs in the Mind, and he had a little community right near in, in uh, on Sonoma Mountain Road, right near Bill Kwong's uh, Genjoji. Oh, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. And but I read Drugs in the Mind, you know, when I was like nineteen twenty. And, uh, you know, he said sleeping pills do not put you into deep sleep. He said the only drug that you can get into deep sleep with is marijuana. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have been amazed at all the good press that marijuana has had, uh, cannabis mm-hmm. has had for all sorts of yeah. medical uh, yeah. uses. Yeah. And I'm very yeah, impressed. I don't personally. I I I think smoking a lot of pot all the time is not a good thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I think a little bit is cool. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting now too, as I know a number of people that have sort of um, with the potency of it and that have gotten carried away with too much that have really sort of had you know some some substance abuse problems with pot that I didn't really expect to earlier but now i'm seeing a little bit more of it and some people that have been using it really like to stay stoned all the time to be mind altering for a number of years and now that they're trying to come off of it 
And it feels to me like what it is, is even though it's not as much of a physical addiction to the body, it's the fact that they've been perceiving things different or maybe masking and hiding some of their real feelings for a long time. And now that they're trying to come off of pot, they, they're having these like super high levels of anxiety and real, you know, craziness that's, um, that they haven't felt in quite a few years, but all of a sudden these feelings are coming back strong and they're really struggling and having a hard time. I know of one person that's actually, their doctors prescribed them ketamine to help them get off pot, which was like totally blew me away. I'm like, wow. You're like, wow. You're getting on a much heavier drug to try to stop doing pot. But I think it's because they were doing such sort of large amounts of strong pot for not for a number of years that it was just like coming off of it was just completely new way of experiencing the world. You know? Yeah. I never liked getting too high on pot. I, it, yeah. I, I could have very strong pot, and there there was very strong pot in the sixties. Uh, it was like uh, Acapulco Gold and uh, Panama Red. Some are very strong, and uh, the, uh, I would just want like one one puff. You know, I did yeah. not. <laughs> I found getting uh, like getting uh, too high on pot to be disorienting and could be very mm-hmm. unpleasant like i couldn't keep up yeah. with what was happening uh yeah uh, so i feel the same way and that's that's why i don't like it like as a social drug and i like sometimes i'll like it when i'm just like alone and you can just sort of you can just sort of zone out and you don't have to keep up with anything you know? yeah yeah i liked it for music but yeah. you know after a while i'm you know basically i'm i'm just happy uh, I'm at, I just like fresh air and sunshine. <laughs> really. <laughs> and exercise. But you also have that experience. You also have that experience sometimes on different drugs. You pot a little bit, but like mushrooms sometimes, right? Where you sort of feel like you figured the answers out to the earth, of course, or you had a, right. a, a mind change, an incredible experience. And then later when you think back on it, like, was it, did I really figure anything out or was I just high and being stupid? You know, yeah. <laughs> which way was it? <laughs> well, I'm not down on, Psychedelics, uh, no, I, I no. don't want them, but I think psychedelics, yeah. I think some psychedelic use is good for people. It, it integrates the yeah. brain in ways that people who've taken psychedelics test out is overall better adjusted and happier than people yeah. who haven't. You know, yeah. there's a lot of good, there's a lot of research happening now too. And I know some people actually, um, a lawyer that we built a house for and his wife, whose son is, um, is an addict that we've been helping trying to help their son out somewhat too, but they're really finding a lot of help with using psychedelics to treat opioid addiction. Oh there's yeah. A whole movement. There's a whole movement towards that now. And they're, they're actually, um, he's working on legislation to try to get it legalized for opioid addiction. That that's been true for, you know, that, that there were people using LSD for, for heroin addiction and alcoholism back in the yeah. 60s and uh, you yeah, know yeah. and uh you know legislators uh you know they, they can be awful stupid legislation can be uh sort yeah, of quite dumb like when they outlawed uh when they outlawed uh marijuana cannabis they made it where you couldn't yeah. get <laughs> hemp rope, hemp paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. And, and then, of course, they made it a schedule, the schedule one drug, right? Where like yeah. heroin is a schedule two, and heroin's a schedule two drug. You're like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's such a uh, the war on drugs. It was political, Disaster. you know. Oh, absolutely. Terrible. Absolutely, it was a complete, complete failure. Complete failure. Ah. Uh, mm. Well, and it's um, interesting to me. It's like the biggest, the biggest problem in society with drugs. If you're not talking about the negative effects on the addicts themselves, but in the rest of society, the biggest negative effect is the crime that goes along with it, you know, and the crime is there because of this war on drugs that we've been having forever. So it's uh, making the cost go up and making the cartels have the market. And if we could eliminate that part of it, it would be such a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what is, what is poor, you know, Portugal legalized all drugs, right? But what do they do yeah, about fentanyl? What, what do you know? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it may be the fact that because, I mean, the reason we're having the massive explosion of fentanyl here is it's it's cheap. Um, it's what's available. I think a big part of the problem is because it's so potent. You can take a tiny package of it that has thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of doses, but super easy to smuggle. And part of what's happening now is people are even just ordering it through the mail. It's, you know, it's coming FedEx basically from China through the mail. So it's so easy to import and so easy to smuggle. And I think that's part of why the explosion of it is happening. And I wonder in Portugal, I, I want to research that more. That's a good question. And I wonder, like, for instance, if morphine or heroin were, you know, is easy to get and and is cheap if it wouldn't if, if fentanyl really just wouldn't be a problem. Mm. Um, like right now, I, I know of addicts around here that would like to use heroin and they're scared of fentanyl, but they just can't find heroin anymore. It's not available. So they're sort of forced to use fentanyl because mm. that's all that's available. So if mm. you had a legal force of controlled dose, you know, pharmaceutical I don't, I'm not sure, you know, pick what, what's the safer version of, you know, morphine or heroin or something um, that was available to all these addicts. Would they stop using fentanyl? I kind of think that they might, you know, or at least people wouldn't start using fentanyl in the first place. Yeah. 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 Well, amazing. Because I, I know a number of heroin addicts that, like, when fentanyl was taking over, they were really just trying to find heroin and really trying to stay away from fentanyl. And eventually they just gave up and said they, they just couldn't find heroin anymore. So they had to switch to fentanyl. Mm. Mm. Well, it's a complex uh, issue. You seem to be uh, very well informed. You must keep studying up uh, and on it. Am I right? Yeah, I'm going to find out. We study, we study up on it and we try to read up on the latest things that have happened, but we also find a lot just by working out in the community and doing a lot of the outreach stuff that we do and talking to yeah. some of the different populations. And I've done, I've done, um, Norcan trainings and homeless encampments, um, in Oakland and then here in, uh, Runner Park in Santa Rosa or Sebastopol where we'll go in. And I did a, we've done two, um, Norcan trainings at, um, funerals at, in homeless encampments where somebody had just passed away and their family asked us to come and, you know, distribute up Norcan to all their friends that are addicts at the mm. funeral. Mm. And so a lot of times, talking to the, you know, there, there's two different groups that I usually do trainings for. One is sort of the, the addicts and the homeless population. And then the other, of course, are just the average person who's like parents that are worried about their kids and they don't know much about it. 
So, of course, the parents and that sort of those groups of people, they don't know a lot. And I'm really teaching them a lot of stuff and teaching them what's going on and teaching them what to look out for out there. And then when I do the trainings for the homeless and the real addict communities, it's 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 almost the opposite. They're really teaching me like I, there's not much that I'm teaching them anymore because they're on the front lines of this. And a lot of most of them, I mean, when I do these homeless trainings, most of the homeless people, addicts that I work with, know exactly what Narcan is. They know how to use it. They've used it on their friends and they've had it used on them already to save their lives. So they know all about it. Um, so I learn a lot from talking to them of what's the latest thing that's happening. Um, what are the latest things on the streets to look out for? I don't know if you've heard now, but there's a, there's a whole new scare, which is actually really scary. It's called um, Trank is the street name for it. Oh God, what's the real name? Oh, Xylazine is the actual name. It's a new drug that's out right now. Uh, it's a horse tranquilizer. It's not an opioid. So the problem is Norcan doesn't work on it um, to, to bring you back from an overdose, but it is a tranquilizer. So it has similar effects and people are overdosing on it. And the other problem it has is it becomes necrotic. So when you're injecting, if somebody's using it you know, intravenously, the site that they inject into the tissue around the site starts to die and they're getting these really bad, nasty sores around the tissue. So that's, Ouch. that's, the, that's the newest thing that's happening that's really scary that we're starting to see. And I, I think it's happening in the larger cities like San Francisco. It's getting really big right now. And then it starts to spread out into the smaller communities around from there. Ah. Ah, uh, well, so that's the kind of stuff that I learn more about from, you know, the population of real addicts that are starting to use it and see it and having those side effects. And then from there, I can take that information and try to teach the, the parents and the kids and the people that are, you know, hopefully trying to keep them safe from not getting to that situation. And we've been a little bit discouraged in trying to work with the real addict community because it just feels kind of um it feels kind of hopeless, you know, because and it's not completely hopeless. But when you work with so many people and don't see a whole lot of success stories, it becomes kind of frustrating. And that's part of why you know we still work with those communities, of course, but we're also really trying to work with younger people and trying to catch people before they get to that point to really give yeah. them some tools to try to help them from getting that carried away. And whether those tools are just knowing what's there to completely avoid or knowing how to be safe with what's you know what they do experiment with well that certainly makes sense that you move your your act you know you move what you're doing to places where it's more effective with younger people yeah yeah, yeah that's the hope yeah we talked to somebody that they talked to one guy that's you know had narcan used on him like 10 different times and he wants a whole bunch of narcan and i gave him narcan and stuff but you also feel frustrated about the fact that like boy that's unfortunate that that's not that's not what i was hoping the use of this product was is that there's some people now that they're using more opioids because they feel comfortable with the fact that if they overdose that you can use norcan to bring themselves back from an overdose so now they feel comfortable using stronger and more opioids so it's like oh that's a that's an unfortunate side of it. oh wow um i remember with you you know about terry Gregg and all that right uh that was one of the names. That's one of the names I thought you were talking about earlier. <laughs> well, Terry was, yeah, yeah. Ter, ter, you know, they, Terry was involved with a pretty big. Uh, some yeah. of the people, not he was a lower level heroin smuggler, but some of the people they were involved with, there were uh, higher level and. Uh, uh, 
anyway, um, but, you know, it ended up killing him. But actually, he ended up committing suicide. Uh, and because he'd come to the end, uh, the feds all knew who he was. He couldn't, you know, and nothing was working for him anymore. And he just got depressed. Actually, it was depression that killed him. Uh, it was too bad. But anyway. And then he was was working with Renee Pate, right? Well, Renee went with him on one trip. Uh, is that what it was? And, uh, got busted. I mean, right. Renee was out of control. Uh, yeah. Another guy I know that went on one of Terry's trips. I worked with, I worked with, yeah, I worked with Renee for a while. Yeah. It, oh, yeah? Well, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. I I oh, always yeah. stayed close with him, but he had a, a demonic side that was yeah, like another yeah. personality that would get violent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, he, he, he got off of rape and kidnapping in San Francisco. And I know he was guilty. Mm-hmm. And I know oh, he had wow. a gun. And, yeah. uh, and I knew who the woman was. And in Florida, when after he'd served, you know, like eight years or something from, for or a certain number of years from being busted for smuggling with a, a kilo of heroin in the Y airport in Florida, where yeah. he was living, he, he, he got arrested for raping, kidnapping, kidnapping, just cause you're not letting somebody move. Holding somebody, right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, he went to prison for that for, I don't know. He was like in prison for 20 years. And, oh uh, no. he, uh, Renee had, uh, he had people frightened of him uh, around Zip yeah. Center. And some of these people were people who dealt with, you know, dealt with tough people. Uh, yeah. so there were there were there were people who did not want who told me if my name comes up with Renee, change the subject. And these were people that dealt with tough people or dealt with uh, yeah. or who were were other drug dealers or something, but right. Renee stopped yeah. drugs. He got, okay. when he finally got out, he, he was in a, uh, a motorcycle accident and he wouldn't let them give him any painkiller at the hospital. Oh, right. yeah. Uh, yeah. and, but you know, Zen Center, uh, uh, put out a, uh, a thing where he couldn't get near Zen Center was, you know, uh, oh, wow. Uh, uh it, it, when he came back, his, uh, his lawyer told him Zen Center had, uh, you know, put out a, uh, you know, where you, there's, you can, you can't uh, go to their property. Uh, mm-hmm. and I try, I knew he was coming back and I tried to get Zen Center to relate to him, to talk to him or something. They didn't do anything. They just, to his lawyer. But, um, oh, yeah. Uh, and so he said, because uh, when he first came back, he didn't tell anybody and just came to Green Gulch. And I, kn- I knew he was coming and I tried to get them to deal with him. And so he sat with um, Clay and me. That's, you yeah. know, like uh, 20 years ago or something. He sat with Clay and me there for a spring you know, one of these events where it's all big public. Uh-huh. Well, everybody was in right. was all freaked out, right? And that's when he got right. the his lawyer got the letter. And then he said, 
I can't go. I can't go to Cincinnati. I can't go anywhere. He said, I guess they know why I was in prison. I said, no, Renee, that's not why. He said, well, why? I said, it's because you threaten people's lives. Uh, He said, what What are you talking about? He didn't know. Didn't really remember. Multiple people, he told them, you know, I know where you live. You know, he'd been chasing. He was chasing after Tigan with a gun. Tigan had to go hide. He didn't remember any of that. It was like he had a split personality. But anyway. Well, uh, I'm off yeah. on a. Well, I worked. I worked with him, you know, in construction. He was working for Peter Vandersteer when I was working for Peter. Right after he got out for the stint that he did for the heroin smuggling, so I worked with him for I don't know six months or something after he got out for that heroin smuggling. Uh huh. Uh huh. He was clean then. He was clean. Yeah, then. he was. He was clean, but he was um, he was pretty rough. You know, he was pretty crude. And we always kind of remember having to tell Renee, like, you know, just calm down. I mean, that's sort of just like the way he would talk and the language he would use around clients was a little bit like out of control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We always we would always say like that. We had two carpenters that were working there, and the one carpenter would always say, "Hey, we just need to cut a whisker off this board," and the other and Renee would always say. Hey, we need to cut a cunt hair off this board. Sort of right, thing. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, you know, uh, Steve Stuckey, the sort of most upright uh, and solid of Zen students and teachers, Renee lived with him. He let Renee rent a oh, room yeah. from him. And then, uh, yeah. uh, you know, once he comes in, and and this is later. Uh and uh he found Renee shooting up. And uh-huh. he said, Renee, you agreed you wouldn't take any drugs. He said, Yeah, uh-huh. but it's the weekend. <laughs> well that sounds about <laughs> right. And then yeah. and, and then so uh, they came to some agreement. Steve was unbelievably tolerant. Uh, yeah. of his kids too. And, uh, yeah. uh, and you never know it because he was so, he was so strict with himself. Uh, but yeah. then, all right, another time he, 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 he sees Renee, he's talking to Renee, Renee's on his way out and Renee straps a gun on, right? Like a oh sh- shoulder thing. And Steve says, uh-huh. Renee, you can't. Live, you, what on earth are you doing with a gun? He said, Well, I gotta have yeah. protection. Uh, yeah, well. it's just, he lived, I mean, Renee's world and Steve's world, and they were so far apart. So Steve said, Well, you've yeah. gotta go. You can't stay here yeah. and yeah. do that. Uh, yeah. well, you know, I, I dealt a lot when my son was, you know, going through his, you know, substance issues and, you know, the, the different deals he'd make, and there was always sort of a, an, a an excuse, an arrangement, a reason. Like you said, well, it's the weekend sort of a thing, you know, and there was many times when I was trying to work with him that I'd I'd let him live with me, but only if he was in a program and only if he tested and those sort of things. And he'd always have, he'd always have something. And I, I, I realized at one point too, that he would actually mm-hmm. keep some clean pee in a little vial on him so that if you ever tested him, that he would have, you know, clean urine to give a clean test at any time. And he would always have that on him. And these are times when I didn't really realize that he was using it at the time because he was pretty good at hiding it. 
Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, I don't know why I get into that Renee thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, there was some reason. What, what was it? Uh, oh, we were talking oh, about, yeah. uh, we were talking about, uh, who, who uh, Terry smuggling? And, oh, I know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to say yeah. something about what Terry did. I I set up an intervention for Terry at Yvonne Rand's uh-huh. house. Cause, okay. Uh, and uh, there were about twenty, maybe thirty people there, and so Terry agreed. We had a guy there, and Terry had plenty of money. Guy there took him off to a, a drug rehab. Terry said, Uh yeah, he'd pay for it. And he did it. And then Terry found out that drug rehab was great. He could clean up and everything and then start taking a lower amount. And uh, uh, he then he started, you know, you know, every once in a while, he just put himself in a drug rehab. He did this a few times. And then he told me, he told me, he'd say, uh, to, uh, when it was about time to leave, he'd say to one of the people there, uh, how much do you work? I mean, how much do you get paid for working here? Mm-hmm. Uh, he told me, he said, how would you like to make $10,000, uh, this weekend for working for one hour? No. And, so no. he hired, he started hiring people out of the oh drug rehab, right? He did it a couple of times <laughs> because he couldn't carry yeah. anything. Yeah. You yeah. know, because they knew him. And, uh, his lawyer was a neighbor of mine in Belina. It's probably the most famous drug lawyer in the country, Tony, uh, Sarah. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Tony told me, that the feds said, yeah, they knew who Renee, uh, who uh, Terry was. They knew what he was doing. They said, but you know, guys like that, that they die. He's not going to live that much longer. They're, they weren't even, they weren't even trying to do anything about it. Yeah. And they were yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. He was like uh, in over his head, but not connected enough to be like cartel, right? He was. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Had. Uh, he just did what he did. He he wasn't. Oh, he had people screw him. He'd never ever have been violent. Uh, well, yeah. He just, yeah. you know, he'd tell me, you know, this person cheated me out of seventy five thousand. There's nothing. He wouldn't do anything. Right. Uh, right. And also, he wouldn't have. Uh, he wouldn't have robbed anybody or anything. Yeah. If if. Uh, yeah. You know, actually, when he died, he owed me money. He'd, okay. he'd stopped dealing yeah. and everything. Uh, yeah. And he owed me $400 when he died after running through, you know, well over a million. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, well. That's too bad. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh Listen, I'm, I'm really impressed with, uh, what you've done. Now we, you, I want to put it the first of this podcast, how people find the work you do, which is Micah's hugs. And Micah is M 
you're Micah, and your son was Micah Jr. M I K A H, right? That's M I C A H. Oh yeah, no, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, you know why? It's cause Indonesian uh, C is uh, okay. C is uh, Cha. Uh, <laughs> and uh, only a K is the K sound. Uh, Micah's drugs. M I C A H. Uh, Micah's hugs. Micah's uh, hugs is yeah. It's our website is probably the best thing to look at. Micah's hugs dot um, dot com. Yeah, Micah's hugs dot com. And uh, are you on Facebook? Um, the Facebook is a little bit different. We have a memorial page on Facebook that's a little bit different than the Micah's hugs. That's just Micah's name itself. Um, but we do have an Instagram, Micah's hugs Instagram. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have both. It's mostly the website and the Instagram. The, the the Facebook page is kind of more for his friends and family, just sort of memorial stuff for him. It's kind of different than what we're doing with the Micah Hugs program from there. Uh, did somebody else we, start you know, it, or did you start it? We started it, but we started it right after Micah passed away, before we had the Micah Hugs um, mm-hmm. Idea or concept going, so it was just more started for a place for people to share memories of him or share. It was kind of nice too that a lot of his friends could you know post videos that they had that I hadn't seen before. So I really sort of appreciated some mm. of the stuff that his friends had on their phones that they'd post on there that I hadn't seen before. And you know, part of the thing with him that we're trying to sort of help and share with people is that you know he was captain of the football team for two years in a row when they had their biggest winning streak at his high school, and he was one of the most popular kids in school, and he. Actually actually broke the weightlifting competition record at Emily High School. You know, he was the strongest kid at, at school. And he was, you know, everybody thought super successful and had so much stuff going on. And it's like, at, at you know, towards the end of there, he was struggling with a heroin addiction at the same time. So, you know, part of the message that we're trying to get across is that, you know, an addict isn't necessarily who you think they are and trying to sort of break that stigma of people sort of assuming they know what an addict is or what an addict looks like. Um, and also getting people to understand that, you know, they uh, so, so many parents that we go, oh, not my kid. And my kid would never do that sort of a thing, sort of a concept. And, you know, there's the addicts that they're running into now are all sorts of people, not just who you might think an addict is. Yeah. 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 And he was an amazing, he was an amazing kid. You know, he touched people's hearts and in really sort of amazing ways. And that was sort of at his funeral that uh, we had lots of people that got up and talked at his funeral and sort of the biggest thing that people said is how much they were going to miss his big bear hugs. And that's where we got the name of Micah's hugs, you know, the, the, you know, for our, our nonprofit is because they, mm. they were just going to miss his hugs so much. And, you know, we had that we did it at a big funeral home and we had, you know, the streets were lined outside the funeral home for blocks. And there was like just so many people wanted to come and just sort of see that because he did touch so many people. Mm. And, and I, when he passed, I was in a, a family support group, you know, talking with other parents of addicts at the time. And when he passed, the other people in the support group said, you know, if we could ask one thing of you, it would be not to hide this and to talk about it and be open about it and share this experience. And, you know, that really sort of hit me and got me to sort of really not hide it from the beginning and be open and want to talk about it. And it's um, it's a big part of starting this whole thing. It's kind of really helped me deal with my grief, you know, because I went through some pretty dark times after he passed away. And it was it was a struggle. And I um. You know, I started having panic attacks, which I had never experienced before. So it was sort of a whole new thing for me having these panic attacks. And during one of my panic attacks, I took myself into the emergency room and sort of just said, hey, I, I need help. And this is I'm fucked up. And 
So they actually put me on a suicide watch, and I wound up spending oh, really? five days in a five days in a psych ward after that, which was very unhelpful, you know, and realized that that whole process is pretty fucked up as well. Wow. You know, it's, it's kind of their way of just covering their ass for liability so they don't get sued by they're locking you up so you can't hurt yourself for five days. Yeah. Yeah. Going from there, but, you know, I was trying to find healthier ways. And, I, you know, I started drinking too much and just sort of, you know, self-medicating myself and, you know, trying to find healthier ways to deal with the grief. And this has been a pretty good one, you know, sort of um, helping other people and sort of spreading this, you know, spreading the information that we have around has really helped me deal with my grief in a more positive way. Hmm. Hmm. Unfortunately, it was kind of a negative experience of the, I mean, I was hoping at least when I got locked up in the psych ward sort of thing that I'd at least had some positive takeaways from it. And I tried to say, okay, you know, I'm here, I'm stuck here. There's nothing I can do about it. Let me see what, what positive I can take away from it. And there were some positive things and some people that I met and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of it, you realize you're just kind of being shipped around. And I remember there was a counselor in there that like the third, fourth day I was there, I finally met with a counselor who was this, you know, Christian woman counselor that basically just tried to tell me to, you know, put my faith in God and everything will be okay. (laughs) Oh God, great. She's not going to help me much. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, uh, Unfortunately, just like being housed for a while. Yeah, well, I, I had um, one experience with that, and your father was involved with getting uh, someone into a psych ward, uh, and mm-hmm. really uh, to protect him, because he was going to get yeah. killed by the cops. And yeah. it, I felt it was very effective because I felt like he said he thought after that I ain't going back there. I'm gonna, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to get that yeah. out of it again. Yeah, yeah. There's, that, there's that piece of it. But there were some people there that were really kind of suicidal that came really looking for for help. And they were pretty disappointed, you know, by the time they left that they didn't feel like they gained much help except for, you know, putting some. And, you know, I, I kind of went in initially and I told them, like, I've been drinking too much and I'm trying to, you know, I'm self-medicating and I want these anxiety attacks that I'm having and I need to find a healthier way to deal with it. And I was looking for some maybe better medication at the time. And, you know, by the time I left at the end of this whole period, they still hadn't given me any medication or done much for me in any way. And I just thought, like, how disappointing that, you know, I thought at least they would come out the other side of this with some, some you know, better medication or better techniques of dealing with this anxiety and this depression. And I did eventually, but it was like that piece of the process didn't really help that much. Well, so when... When Mike had died, how long was it before you started Micah's Hugs? Um, it was probably about, it, it's hard to say because it's like, it was a slow process, right? We sort of started, when Micah first passed away, his ex-girlfriend and his best friend came to his funeral. And they were both, you know, obviously using at the time. They were not clean. And after his funeral, they disappeared. And their family couldn't find them for three months. They were gone, completely missing. And they were, you know, 22 years old at the time. And so Michelle and I, the first sort of thing that we did was about three months after the funeral. And this wasn't Micah's hugs at the time, but this was the first thing we started doing to see if we could help in some way. And we sort of made it a mission of ours to sort of see if we could find them and just where they were at. 
So we started sort of just looking on social media and asking around and we heard some rumors and different things. And we ended up finding them in a homeless tent encampment in Oakland, right across from Oakland Geyser in a park across from Oakland Geyser. And we found them there and tried to see if we could, you know, help out in any way. And they kept saying, you know, they want help and they want to get clean and they'll be ready next week. They'll be ready next week. They'll be ready next week. And as far as I know, they're still in a homeless tent encampment in San Francisco. Now they moved from Oakland to San Francisco. Really? And that's, Sort of the that's sort of the first thing we started doing. Obviously, we didn't have the foundation established at that time. It wasn't called Micah's Hugs, but that was um, shortly after that. And my wife and I talked about like, okay, what could we do to help these people? And it was a it was this homeless encampment. I would say there was about thirty five people. They were all opioid addicts, um, and I thought they were all sort of heroin addicts at the time. And that was my first idea. I said, okay, let's let's get fentanyl test strips because Micah died of fentanyl that was in his heroin. And I don't think he knew there was fentanyl in his heroin. I think he thought he was smoking black tar heroin at the time. So I kind of thought, well, what can I do? Maybe I can help some of these other kids stay away from fentanyl. So we went and we bought fentanyl test strips and we took them down to this homeless encampment in Oakland and said, hey, look, we've got these test strips. You guys can test you know, your heroin and make sure. And they all started looked at me and they were like, well, hey, well, thanks a lot, but we're all doing pure fentanyl now. We know it's fentanyl. We can't even find heroin anymore. So you know, thanks for your test strips, but they're not going to help much. So that's when we started sort of looking for different things and what can we do? How can we help? Where can we help? And, you know, we're trying to keep it pretty, um, you know, flexible. So as the need changes, what we're doing changes. And if the, it looks like they're taking the prescriptions, you know, aspect of the Norcan away, and they might even start making Norcan free and maybe you won't have to do what we're doing anymore. So we'll, we'll morph it into something different. But I would say it was probably about six months after six months to a year when we really started, you know, turning, trying to turn it into something and talking about establishing a nonprofit. And I think it took, I mean, our official nonprofit took a couple of years before we actually had the license and all the proper paperwork and all that kind of stuff going. But it was pretty soon afterwards that we started doing this kind of stuff. And my wife, Michelle is, um, She's always been really into community service and having, she's the um, the head of our local 4-H and she always pushes community service a lot with the kids in our local 4-H and her girls have done a ton of community service and they've won the Jefferson Award for community service with KPIX and the San Francisco 49ers community service award and they work with the homeless a lot. So it was kind of a you know perfect fit with her and with him, Micah passing of us turning this, you know, what we've done into something and that's kind of uh, actually we were t- this morning. Uh, my wife in uh, in two weeks is donating a kidney to somebody that needs a kidney. <laughs> so, oh really? Yeah, yeah. She, we just we were in UC San Francisco for half the day this morning, getting the final testing all done and getting ready for the operation in two weeks from now. So, oh my God! Donating pretty uh, serious. Donating one of her kidneys to somebody that she went to high school with that needs a kidney. So wow. So we've just sort of taken that and. We've gotten you know quite a bit of attention lately from you know media attention and won the local press Democrats um, Spirit Award and we've been on the local radio station a number of times being interviewed and it's starting to sort of push things that way but uh, it was um, the whole Micah's Hugs thing was kind of a slow growth where we just started little things here and there until we could figure out what was needed. We've done now um, that we've raised money to pay for 30 scholarships for people to stay for six weeks at a sober living environment. 
Um, you know, we've donated to pay for people to go to detox and things like that. And we just sort of jump in when we, when we see what we can do. I've, you know, we've gotten to the point where I've, you know, worked with people enough and that people kind of trust me when they hear my story. So I've had things like, um, we had a friend of a friend called us up because their daughter who's 21 disappeared to Spokane with a guy and was drinking a handle of vodka a day for the last two weeks in the hotel there. And the mom flew up and can't, couldn't get her home because she actually tried to get her on the plane and they wouldn't let her on the plane because the way she was acting, trying to bring her home and they couldn't figure out how to get her home. So Michelle and I jumped in the car and drove to Spokane and picked her up and brought her home. And it's like, you know, just understanding the concepts a little bit better and knowing how to work with people that are in this situation and getting them to trust you and, come home in the car with you and when they're fighting with their parents or her mom was up there kind of screaming at her to not touch another drop of alcohol and I kind of went you know the problem you have right here is this kid's been drinking a handle of vodka for the last two or three weeks and you can't just shut her off instantly and I know this is going to be counterintuitive to you but we're going to go to the liquor store and we're going to buy her a bottle of alcohol to get her home. We're going to try to, you know, moderate it in some way so it's not completely out of control. But, you know, she can actually die if you just cut her off after those levels of drinking. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's a voice of experience. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you learn. And I learned a lot through my own experience. And I did the same thing with my son in the beginning where I just thought, you know, yeah. my first concept when. When I first found out Michael was doing heroin and he was in a pretty bad spot and I brought him home and we he detoxed on my couch here. I went out in the streets and bought black market Suboxone, which is, you know, Suboxone is the drug that helps you get through withdrawals and detox mm. from opioids. Mm. And, you know, I had him on the couch. And at that time, I still had this concept in my head that, like, once he gets through this physical addiction, his body's not hooked on physically addicted to heroin anymore, then he should be fine. You know, he'll be okay. You know, then you start to realize just how much more difficult and how much more complicated it is than that. You know, there are so many more underlying. Have you read the book or seen the movie A Beautiful Boy? Oh, uh, no, but we should. Okay. So- yeah, so it's actually, it's really interesting because they are a family, um, I think you'd really get it, you'd really find it interesting. They're family from, they live in Point Reyes now, um, but they grew up a lot in San Francisco, and I believe they actually lived in Bolinas for a while. Um, his son, Steve Carell, the comedian, actually plays the father in the, in the movie, but he plays a really serious role and does an amazing job of it, actually. Mm. And that movie, A Beautiful Boy, when we watched it, it, was so that was before Micah passed when we watched that. And it was so parallel to the experience that I was having with Micah. And we actually met the real father and son at one point. And you know, when I was talking to the son, and he told me that he went to rehab 10 times before he got clean. And the last time he was in rehab, the person asked him, like, what's your mental health diagnosis? And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I never had a mental health diagnosis since they were, you know, 10 times in rehab and he's never had a mental health diagnosis. So they actually gave him a real mental health diagnosis and determined he was pretty severely bipolar. And they got him on the proper bipolar medication and he's been clean for 10 years. Oh, after that's failing, after, really after interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. Uh, so he had this real underlying mental problem that he was self-medicating with with opioids. You know. Wow, wow. Uh, so uh, now, how how has your mental health progressed? I mean, 
you you know you were grieving so much and you were talking about you know yeah. uh self medicating panic attacks um yeah. how how did that uh, to me i i can think of no no better medicine than service <laughs> uh yeah and yeah. uh so how how are you personally i mean how do you feel now how 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 did how did your uh state of mind evolve yeah so it's been really something and i think part of the hard part that i had in the beginning is i don't think i really like allowed myself or or even understood that the grieving was as severe and intense as it was of losing a child like that and i just sort of um i think that i just expected myself to get over it quickly and to get back to being my old self and to you know went back to work pretty quickly which was sort of disastrous and didn't work very well i couldn't concentrate at work i couldn't get much done and ended up having to take more time off and i think one of the hardest things that i found is i was trying to get back to being the same person that i was before micah pat died quickly and being as motivated and being as ambitious as I was at work quickly. Mm. And the problem that I was having is like things just weren't that important to me anymore. I didn't give a shit about a lot of these things that I used to care about more. Mm, and I that understand. was sort of hard to deal with because yeah. a lot of like I'm building these really exquisite homes for really rich people that are really finicky and really nitpicky. And we're sitting there spending a week coming back multiple times looking at four or five different shades of white to pick which white we're going to put on the wall. And I found myself just going, I don't give a fuck. Just pick one. Like who fucking cares? It's they're almost the same shade of white. And there's so many more important things in this world than that fucking shade of white. And that became a little difficult for me. And um, I think what's finally helping me some now is sort of just coming to the conclusion and the understanding that I don't think I'm ever going to be that person ever again. Um, and I'm having to sort of accept that and having yeah. to be okay with the fact that yeah. I won't be, and, I, and I'm having to accept the fact that I'm going to slow down a little bit and I'm going to, you know, as they say, smell the roses a little bit more and I'm never going to be quite as driven or quite as ambitious as I used to be. And I'm going to have to stop and take a break when I need to just, you know, mellow out and not get overly anxious. And that's, that's been helping, but it's, it's a process. And I would say, honestly, my, my second year, I would say was almost harder than my first year of this, which I never expected. I thought, you know, that I'd be over all this the second year, but it, there's sort of a feeling like the first year of going through things that you've got all this support, you've got all this help, you've got everybody's understanding, everybody's there for you. And all the first experiences that you go through are hard, but everybody's sort of understanding it. And sort of by the second year, you kind of feel like now everything's supposed to be fine. Everything's supposed to be normal. Nobody's quite understanding this anymore. And I'm supposed to just be fine and, and back to. And I really had a hard time the second year just trying to. And I felt like it was about year three is when I started to be able to feel like. I mean, the beginning of year three was when I started to be able to feel like. Um, you know, I, I could start to function a bit more normally and my life was a bit more normal and I wasn't just constantly. There was an interesting thing that Joe Biden actually said, you know, because he's lost children as well, too. Yeah. And there was an interesting thing that he said about the loss of his son. And when he was talking to other people who had lost their children, which I thought kind of made sense, is that, you know, you'll never get over it. You'll never stop grieving. But there'll become a time when the thought of your child will bring a smile to your face before it brings a tear to your eye. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. And that's really true because there was a long period where I couldn't think about Micah without just being 
really sad and devastated, you know, and then there became a point where I could think about fond memories of him and sort of mm. smile when I thought about him. And that was, that was interesting once, mm. that, once that happened. But it took a long time, a lot longer than I expected. You know, I didn't, I wasn't prepared for like, I say for grief to be physical. Like there's periods where I felt like I just physically couldn't even get up out of bed, no matter how hard I physically tried. I just like, you just, why, you know, fuck it. And I kind of wasn't prepared for that to be that, mm. Mm. you know, have that big of an impact. It almost felt physical, not just emotional and mental, but physical. Yeah. How long has it been since Micah died? Um, it's been a little over three and a half years. Wow. Is that yeah. all? Yeah. yeah. Three and a half years. Wow. Yeah. You've so done a lot. You've you've done a lot in three and a half years. <laughs> I think you've yeah, put your yeah. ambition. You've put your, your 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 ambition, your motivations in a different direction. Yeah, there's something to that too. But there's even times when I just I get overwhelmed and I just can't. You know, I we we get on a project and we push it for a little while and then I just get overwhelmed and I have to just sort of put it on the back burner for a little while and not think about it for a week and then come back to it. Cause I just get sort of overwhelmed or too emotional, those sorts of things. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There, is something, there is something to that for sure. Yeah. Well, um, you know, people involved in, in service, uh, burn out. Uh, yeah. and, it, and it, uh, you, you have more motivation than, than, uh, some people, but, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, you have to take care of yourself first. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. but what you're doing and is that, really good because you're, 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 uh, you're, you're creating, uh, uh, you, you know, you have a program and you're, you're aiming your work in a direction where there's a vacuum, where there's a real yeah. need for it. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think the service is very good if you're doing something that everybody else is doing, like working in a soup kitchen or something like that. But what you're doing has a, a creative aspect to it. And, and you have a lot of intelligence and knowledge. And, uh, uh, yeah, I just think you ought to keep doing that. And um, uh, to me, uh, when I think about uh, uh, working with Ken and the contracting and stuff, that's just to me, that's just sort of like, uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what it really is. This is the way I see it. That's like therapy for you, getting out and doing something physical and all that. But it's not important anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I get yeah. your money. It's, actually not even, it's, not, it's not even physical anymore. I mean, I haven't swung a hammer in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a, I mean, I'm either doing site meetings or I'm on a computer. I mean, that's my job is just, it's not even physical anymore. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty stressful contracting and constantly dealing with it. And there's parts of me that think sometimes like, you know, is there a way I could actually make a living by doing the Micah Thug stuff and sort of retire from the contracting thing because it gets pretty stressful. You know, there's times when I just feel overwhelmed by the stress. Yeah. Yeah. 
But at this point, at this point, it's a it's a pretty good living, and you know, it's hard to do the other sorts of things. There's a lot of different things I think of, of like what could I do instead? And you know, you always have to deal with the fact that it would I'd make half as much money doing any of the other things that I could think of. And like, but I've I've definitely thought about like, okay, what's what's the point in life, and what are the lifestyle changes that it would take to be able to survive on half as much money? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, Kelly was. Uh, at a pretty high level in the wine business, right? right. And he was being offered yeah. the whole West Coast by the biggest uh, distributor yeah. in the country, and uh, yeah. he quit it. He, you yeah. know, like after ten years or something, he he quit it. He was really really good at it, but yeah. he quit it to to earn a third as much with a tree yeah. trimming business. Yeah, and Sometimes then his tree it. trimming business evolved into something which yeah. made him a lot more than the why. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't plan it that way, so you don't know what'll be yeah, uh, ahead yeah, for. Uh, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Well. Um, uh, well. Anyway, I'm very impressed. Uh, look what you've done in this shorter time. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's very good. Um, and, uh, and a big chunk of it, a big chunk of it, I've got to give to my wife Michelle too. You know, she's really been my my support through this whole thing. And like, you know, obviously, there's I've got to I have to give myself some credit too. But I mean, she she really is the you know the the <laughs> carrying such a big load in this thing too. And she's really driven a lot of it. So she's she's been right. my support through this. Thing. Right. Well, I think of Micah's hugs as being. Micah Senior, you and Michelle, and Michelle's his stepmother. Yeah, what What about Denise? Yes, that's it. my daughter's actually engaged right now. She got she's getting married, and um, so you know we can still like she's having an engagement party. She invited us to, so we'll go to that. So we're not, you know, we we can do things like that together, and we can be around each other. But we realize it's just, or at least I realize that it's a lot of less stress. So. She's very sensitive, very emotional, and very controlling. And I was spending a lot of time and effort and energy tiptoeing around her emotions and trying not to upset her and trying not to piss her off. And you know, at some point, I just realized it was too much of my own energy and my own stress to tiptoe around her that way. So it's, we're kind of better off if we just don't communicate as much. And we don't hate each other, but we don't have to talk a lot at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well... That's, um, I didn't want, uh, you know, uh, this is a really good podcast, but I'll cut that part out. Uh, but it's, oh, yeah. it's, please, it's, please it's uh, <laughs> I, I just wanted to know, <laughs> well, don't, don't worry. Yeah. You know, one thing, uh, I'm, I'm doing, uh, these days is, uh, uh, I'm transcribing the podcast with artificial intelligence. It's just, oh my God, you know, yeah. And uh, voice recognition is so good now. It'll it'll get it'll get it'll get you know like ninety eight percent of what you say is right, and that's a new voice. And before you wow. had to like train a voice, and so I can I can scan now, not have to listen. I at first when I was doing podcasts, and I've done a few hundred of them with people, you know. At first I would listen mm-hmm. to the whole thing, and I'd like. 
Well, uh, you know, make sure there was, you know, I'd take out glitches and anything they said that, like, I knew they wouldn't want other people to hear or something that was said that was unkind about somebody. But then I got to be, I got, I figured out I'd just make a note when I was doing it. You know, it's at, you know, mm-hmm. 43 minutes and 20 uh, seconds, um, there's a cough or are they, you know, you know, just go there. Uh, but now I don't have to do that. I just transcribe it and I scan down it and go, oh, wow. you know, oh, here's the part he talks about, Denise. And and oh. then that see, it makes two files. It makes one that's just text and the second one that has the text with the seconds. You know, I wow. can go to the fraction of a second for anything. So mm-hmm. I just, on the second one, I go, uh, Denise. I just search for Denise. Then it says, you know, it's so and so. Then I go to it. And, uh, but first I mark an XX for where to start cutting and then a YY to where to mm-hmm. end cutting. And I just go to those points so I can do it like, so much quicker now. And, uh, anyway, uh, well, that's really good. I, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I'm very impressed. Yeah. Um, well, uh, don't burn yourself out. Uh, I think you've got to, I think you ought to just keep doing this and, um, yeah. filling in that a vacuum as well. What about, oh, there is one thing. What about teaching teachers? What about, uh, you know, you, what you're doing is important. And uh, to, to what extent are are you uh, passing on uh, your knowledge and everything so uh, to other people to do this sort of work? Yeah, so that's something that's been coming up more just recently. We haven't done a lot, but we've been having like a lot of people that are you know liking what we're doing and been asking what they can do to help and how they can get involved. And so far, we haven't really done much of that yet. But it's sort of the next our next um, thought of where we want to be heading because we have had so many people want to help and want to get involved. And you know, Michelle and I are both are just people that sort of jump in and do stuff. And I think that that's. Uh, um, that's another way of thinking about it that I think is helpful that we want to go to next. Um, the other, way, we didn't talk about that any, but we actually made a film about Micah and about addiction. Um, and we got it. We hired a, somebody to make this film who got all the video done and put, as he was starting to put things together, he got overwhelmed. His business sort of took off in a different direction and he was having a hard time getting all the B roll and the stuff to do the final editing. So he's actually kind of turned it over to us. He gave us a hard drive with all these hours and hours of interviews that he did with people and places that we've gone and different, you know, people in recovery that he's talked to and friends of Micah's that he's talked to about a whole bunch of things and interviews. So we want to finish putting this film together um, and sort of take that around when you said about, you know, teaching and part of what we want to do with that is take it around to schools in the area and sort of show it to the kids. And uh, part of what we want to do with that too is get some of the younger people that have gone through recovery or, you know, have been part of the process to help us um, present this film to some of the kids so they can be, you know, talking to somebody that's closer to their age that's gone through what maybe they're going through or maybe what we're hoping they don't go through at the same time. And those are people that we'd like to sort of maybe pull into our project to get them working with us and talking to kids and talking to teachers at the schools when we start trying to show this film. And actually just last week I contacted the 
head of at Anley High School, which is a high school here in our town, I contacted the guy that does the the, um, the video program. He's teaching all the kids how to you know shoot videos and edit stuff. I uh, talked to him to see if they'd be interested, and he's really interested. And he says he's got some kids that he thinks would be really interested in trying to help me put this film, finish putting this film together. So getting some high school kids involved and you know, doing the B-roll and doing the editing on this film to put together to help show around high schools, I think, might be a good way to start pulling other people in. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of work, uh, working on <laughs> film, uh, working on video. Yeah, like I said, yeah, we hired somebody to do it, and it was going pretty good. And then actually, we started it before COVID, and then you know, it was kind of things got crazy yeah. after that. And then we just his business went a different direction. And he was a nice guy, but he finally just gave us the hard drive with all the everything that he's just hours and hours and hours of everything that he's filmed. And now we're going to try to put it together. You know, one thought I have about what what I do is uh, I put the the, uh, the like you're going to have. Uh, many, many times more material than you would use in a film. Yeah. Uh, I'd have a oh, website yeah. like, like if you have different interviews with people that had the full interview. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. where you can go, yeah. uh, see, uh, uh, you know, whatever works in it. Uh, that would need sure. s- some editing too, probably, but. Yeah. You can put basically put all your raw material on a website. Uh, you, you yeah. know, it needs to be organized and make, make it, you know, and it'll be work too, but it would be less work than a film. And then somebody can sure. go see the, uh, can go, you know, check out more yeah, about sure. this person or that person or whatever. Yeah, uh, I think so, that's a good idea, and especially because we're trying to keep this film relatively short because our concept is to want to take it around to like you know high school classes and stuff. And there was a film that we saw that was in a similar sort of concept of what we're trying to do, but it was like a a ninety minute long film, and it was a good film. We really liked it, but we also thought like if too you long. Show this ninety minute long film to kids in in high school, you'd lose their attention, you know. So we're trying to cut it back to something that's not going to where the kids aren't going to go wandering by the time they get bored. That's right. How, how what 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 time length are you looking at? Thinking I think, about? I think we're looking at like fifteen twenty minutes of something that you can show in a class period where you can oh, go into a you know a high school. That's really smart. Can, I didn't. I was yeah. thinking half an hour. That's really yeah. smart. You could also maybe come up with um, a multiple, uh, edit, yeah. m- multiple yeah. versions. You know. Yeah, I really like uh, I like that idea, and I've talked to the guy about doing that too—a longer one and a shorter one. If you consider you've got a high school class, which is you know forty-five minutes or something, and then by the time they get the kids seated and settled down, and you can go in and talk a little bit, and then have this other person that I'm hoping to get you know somebody younger to help come come present, show a fifteen twenty minute film, and then sort of take questions afterwards and talk to them about it. Now, when you're talking about forty-five minutes, yeah, I'd say fifteen because the the questions and the no, answers. I, yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I was I was saying that a lot of the high school classes are 45 minutes long, so we're looking at a 15, 20 minute film right. that you could show and still have and still have time before and afterwards to talk to people. Yeah, and then then yeah. you could tell them if you want more, you could tell them where you could go, where they could go meet or uh, yeah, something. Yeah. They they might want to do more follow up with you. Uh, yeah. Huh. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Well, um, 
Yeah, well, uh, okay, Mike. Mike, it's really good to talk with you a long time, too. It's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you too, David. You too, for sure. It's so interesting to me. It's also interesting uh, and, yeah. uh, and serious. <laughs> Uh, yeah, very, yeah. very serious. And yeah, the, you know, uh, Mike's death, uh, was very sad, yeah. uh, to so many of us. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, uh, it was very sad for me to think about you and Denise and Michelle and Ken and Elizabeth and dealing with it. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I think I, think I it hit me that like I, I I never quite put together like when somebody passes just so much how much sort of devastation there is that that goes out to so many different levels and so many different people you know it's really increased my amount of empathy that I just have for other people so sort of understanding of just how painful that can be. Yeah, I mean when my mother died at almost ninety nine, I was with her and I'd been with her for two months and and she just slowly died it was just inspiring you know she didn't complain yeah. she didn't take drugs she just stopped eating and yeah. drinking and i was just right there a foot away from yeah. her when yeah. she died yeah. and i wasn't yeah. sad i yeah. thought that was beautiful yeah. i didn't yeah, i yeah. didn't grieve you know I, right. Right. you know but when micah died i did <laughs> And it's still painful yeah, yeah. for me to think about it. Yeah, I was actually when my when Michelle's mom was getting sick from cancer, and I be, I became her caretaker in the end because nobody else could kind of figure out how to take care of her. So I became her caretaker for quite a while, and so you know I was I was with her at the end with hospice, and I was sitting with her when she passed, and I was sort of giving her last morphine doses, sort of thing in the end. Mm. So you know I've, I've been through that sort of a process of mm. you know the process of what we what we assume is the typical life, right? When somebody dies, when they get older, and their their sort of time to go, and then sort of the difference of that experience versus you know losing your twenty two year old son when yeah. they're supposed to go. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, a young baby dying as being the worst thing. I don't think so. I think a teenager dying or uh, somebody Micah's yeah. age. I think that's, or, yeah. you know, once they, you know, uh, just somebody dying too soon when you've already, yeah. you know, you're already they're totally embedded in you. Uh, that, that to me is is uh, very painful, and it's it's worse yeah. than sad. Uh, yeah. Um, I anyway. think you know the, the the hard part is that they're just at that point where you've sort of you've gone through that process of teaching them right what you're supposed to teach them as a child and getting them to become an adult, and now it's their time to go out in the world and and create their own life, and then soon they don't get to start that process. Hmm, yeah. Ah, well, okay. Mike, it's been really good talking with you. Uh, and, uh, I really appreciate it. Appreciate everything you had to say. And, uh, yeah, thank you, David. You too. Yeah. Hey, drop by anytime. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. We'll just swing on by. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you got a place here. We got a place for you here. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. We've talked about doing that, you know, visiting that part of the world. So if we if we make that trip, we're actually doing Costa Rica and Panama this year. So maybe the next big trip we'll have to head to head to Indonesia. Yeah, Clay's coming. Clay and his um, partner and their baby are coming in okay. two weeks. Oh, wonderful! Actually, thirteen days. Yeah, that'll that'll be nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen him in almost 10 years. Uh, oh, my God. And they're coming for six weeks. So, that's yeah, that's going to change well, things here. <laughs> yeah, have a great time with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, take care, Mike. All right. You too, David. Thank thanks you. a lot. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So thanks a lot, Mike. It was really good talking with you. Uh that's the longest talk I've had with Mike, uh, maybe ever. <laughs> I mean, I knew him and everything. We didn't talk for two hours and 15 minutes, I think we did. Um, anyway, thanks a lot for what you're doing and, and what you will be doing. And thanks to Michelle, too. And take a look at micashugs.org. M-I-C-A-H-S-H-U-G-S dot org. And uh, maybe you can figure out some way to help them out. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doggett Bandita. No longer guest dog at Boombita. His owners uh, came back from America. So uh, she was here three months. And and uh, my son Clay, who's uh, younger than Micah by 18 years. Uh, and and he, he and um, his mate April and their baby Isla just left... Oh, not long ago. They just ran, uh, landed a couple hours ago in uh, San Francisco from visiting us in Bali and um, hadn't seen him in 10 years. Uh, and that was great, almost 10 years, uh, nine years and uh, nine months, something like that. Uh, anyway, it was wonderful. They were here six weeks. It was a wipeout. I slept nine hours yesterday and then I took a two hour nap <laughs> and uh, yeah and then I went and got a massage which I hadn't done in a couple of months uh, which is uh, quite affordable here um, <laughs> say the least then anyway all of us are wishing you and yours a grand awakening